not only leaving us well, but soft electric were tremendous and stirred the heart. This is we move into Advent season. We come uh, to this time of the year to celebrate the incarnation of our Savior. And uh, it is a joy, Grace, to be back with you. It's been a little while, and I am so delighted, so blessed by the invitation that Dr. Allen gave uh, for me to be able to come and enjoy it. To, to join with you and to enjoy a Sunday of worship together. And we did it together for So I am very thankful, very delighted. Um, you are a treasure and a blessing in all that God is doing in this fellowship that is making his name known across the handle and around the world. So I am thankful. I did hate this thing to link up more meeting on with the board directors. Uh, I am, but it was for a good reason, having just newly wed. I am so grateful that my wife, Marley, was able to come with me. If I refer to her as Marl, that's just my name for her. And I am delighted and glad for how God drew us uh, together, how we met. And just to let you know how grateful we are to be here. We're actually celebrating our one-year anniversary of meeting each other. This happened uh, a year ago today. Um, we, uh, a mutual pastor friends, uh, have been trying to introduce us for years. And finally, uh, God opened the door for us to do so. Together to bless with them, uh, to be able just to see what the interaction would be like, and then if things were progressively good, we were going to go have a coffee together. And eight hours later, we were finishing up uh, as the coffee shop was running us out. And uh, and uh, we, um, we 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 I think we're both pretty terrified pretty quickly in the depth of feelings we have so quickly. But God was really blessed and given grace um, to our family. Thank you for allowing us to share here. Um, Dr. Allen, Brother Richie, Richard, we have been friends for a very long time. Um, and I am blessed to call you brother and you have a encouragement. Um, from our partnership in the gospel, going back to 1991, and to be able to link up together and us be in Iceland. We were at 66 north when they were at zero degrees on the latitude line and um, and so we served together in ministry and so I thank you for this privilege. And as I shared with you before, I think the last several times I was here from the church in Iceland that has um, reproduced and is currently looking to plant again in the town of Ocuary, if you will keep them in prayer. Um, they on um, last Sunday had three baptisms and uh, this past year But this is a 
in the late 80s. And uh, we were both youth pastors in churches in the uh, Gwinnett, Georgia area. And so we're up there and we're, we're doing classes together. Then we go up to North Georgia College. Well, this happened at North Georgia College in 1988. True story. All of us know certain people who just don't get the punchline of jokes, right? That may be you. Someone tells a joke, and we know that, that you know, either they don't get it, or maybe it's you, you know, you don't often catch it. Well, they had a friend, a group that they sat around, and this young lady, she just never got the punchline of a joke. So she was kind of always just sort of looking up, don't really get it, so they explained to her after, and she'd laugh. Anyway, okay. So anyway, class started at 8 o'clock, and so uh, they're there, and um, so they're there prior to the class, and um, it's probably about 7.45 or thereabouts. And so Jeff said, this individual tells a joke that he has heard that weekend. And everyone laughs except for her. And the guy who tells the joke looks at her, kind of points at her and says, 7.47, shoo. <laughs> now, we all know what that means, right? Airplane, 7.47, you know how you've done that with people? 7.47, shoo, you know, she didn't get it. All right. So everyone sort of laughed. She was sort of mystified, a little bit ticked off. They were laughing at her. But anyway, then the professor comes in, class begins. So in the midst of class, at the 814 mark, we know this because you'll understand in a minute, the professor tells the joke. And everyone gets the joke, including the girl who never gets the joke, except for the guy who had told the joke earlier. He's sitting there looking with this dumbfounded look on his face, didn't get it, she's laughing, then she notices he doesn't get it, he, she looks at him, she starts laughing even more, she points at him and says, 814. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, some people just don't get it. <laughs> it amazes me, but in our day, in all that we have had put before us, some people still don't get the reason for this moment. Some people still are missing the incarnation, what God will do. Some people don't get when they think hope, hope is found in what gift they unwrap. And then the gift is unwrapped and we realize why hope was so fleeting. What we want to do this morning is draw together from God's Word. Look at where hope is found. And I pray that we see that in God's relentless pursuit of us, that He, that he pursues after us with such, with, with such tenacity for His glory and our good. That we would see that in, in, this, in this passage. Um, and I don't know where you're at this morning in your relationship with God. Perhaps you know Him personally. You call Him. Savior and Lord. And if that's the case, my heart delights and rejoices with you as one who's been naming the name of Christ as Savior and Lord for over 40 years now. I rejoice with you. And I pray this message will encourage and, 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 and stimulate that joyous relationship. If you're here and you, you name Him as Savior and Lord, but that relationship has grown distant pray this morning would be a time of renewal. You're here and you know that theoretically can be Savior and Lord and it's so things. And that's the beauty of this passage. You know it theoretically but you don't know it personally. And it doesn't move you in your being. That our, our 
hope and our prayer is that God would open your arms to see him clearly and to favor him towards you. That you would get And, uh, and you, would, you would realize that he has been pursuing you for his great love, for his great love, and for your joy. So as we, as we go into this, uh, I want to read through the passage. It's a little passage, so stay with me. Um, and then we'll pray and we'll just say together. So, all of Luke's Gospel, chapter 15. Now, all the tax gatherers and the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to Jesus to listen to them. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners in each of them. And he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if you had a hundred sheep and had lost one of them, not leave the 99 to the open and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep which is lost. Verse 7, critical. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Verse 8. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I have lost. In the same way, I tell you that there is joy in the presence of the angels over one sinner who repents. And he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered together everything and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Some translations may say worldly living, like vicious living, basically as a... Uh, a, a, a testimony of, of great brokenness, but spending it for for his personal pleasure. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be in need. And he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed the swine. And as he was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving him anything, then he came to his senses, and he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and your son. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And he got up, and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion for him, ran and embraced him, kissed him. And the son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf. Kill it and let us eat and be married. For this son of mine is dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to be married. Now the older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and death. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things might be. And he said to him, your brother has come, your father has killed the fat and calf, 
became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began entreating him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I've been serving you. That word serving there, the original language, what do mean? I've been enslaved to you. I, I, the kind of not servanthood that like, like is healthy in regards to I serve the kingdom of God, I serve in my family, I serve my spouse. It's, it's this idea of indebtedness as, as that of a slave. I've been serving you or slaving for you, and I've never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a gift that I might be married with my friends. But when this son of yours came, was devoured your wealth to harvest. He killed the fatted And he said to him, My child, you have always been to me. And all that is mine too. But we had to be there and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live. He was lost. Oh God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would guard my mouth. Say only that which would exalt Jesus as Lord, Savior, that you would just guard everything that is done and said so that Jesus would be exalted and that you would give us ears to hear to respond. Holy Spirit, speak to us in a very personal way through your so Jesus is meeting with and enjoying time with tax collectors and the Bible uses the term sinner we don't necessarily know exactly what that means except for people who typically are living in a way that we might call worldly or secular those who uh, I'll use a term by Tim Keller I don't know if he coined it or not but it's who I've heard to you he, he calls People, all people of today's culture, libertines. Those who take complete liberty in basically uh, all, all morals are relative to what you believe. It's, it's a libertine type movement where basically life is what makes you happy to be liberated to enjoy. I don't know if you did this with me, with you. those who were tax collectors, those who made money or wealth off of others, and those who used wealth for their own personal pleasures and other people's that's who Jesus was meeting with in eating. And the scribes and the Pharisees, those who copied down the law, and those who interpreted the law, began to grumble against him. Now they did this often. This was often the scenario. They, they recoiled against Jesus and who he met with because they saw them as unclean people. But they were clean. They were, he was, should have been hanging out with them. So Jesus, knowing their thoughts and intentions, tells a story. Now, one story, he breaks into three parts, and all three parts tell the same story with greater emphasis. So to begin with, we have a lost sheep. Now, how many total sheep are there? 100. One goes missing. That's 1%. Right? And so the shepherd leaves all the other sheep. He doesn't go take them back and pick them up. He leaves the others in the pasture. He chases out after. He finds that one lost missing sheep, the 1%, brings it back with him, carries it back. When he gets back home, he invites all of his friends and family to a big party to celebrate that which was lost to be found. And then how does he close the story? I tell you this truth. In heaven, there is more rejoicing over one lost sinner who repents the 99 who see no need for repentance. 
having 10 pieces of silver. Perhaps this was her sacred. Perhaps this would have been an inheritance. And this is her livelihood. 10 pieces of silver. Lost one. The value has gone up both in what was lost and the percentage. This is now 10% of what she had. It's a silver coin, not just a sheep. And so she tears the place, the house, to sweep it all up. Why? Because she needs to find it. And when she finds it, what does she do? She does the same thing. She invites all her friends to come over and make merry with her because what was lost has been found. Now, clearly, they would have been captured by the storyteller because now he gets to the third part of the story. I want to tell you about a father who has two sons. Sons, may way more valuable than silver or sheep. Percentage, not 1%, not 10%, I'm going to tell you about two sons. The first son, the younger son, came to his father, who clearly must have been a wealthy landowner. Many possessions, many animals, right? And so he owns all this, he has great wealth, and his younger son comes to him and says, Father, give me my inheritance. Give me what is due to me. Now, to put it in modern terms, what the son saying to the father is this. You can't, you can't miss this point. I wish you were dead so I could give a private That's the type of insult to me. So you want me to die. If I can get my inheritance, I can't wait for you to die. So give it to the man. So the father, at the request of the younger son, now, He's, he's wealthy, but his wealth is in land, cows, goats, maybe chickens. I don't know, but it's, it's not in liquid assets. So in order to convert land and animals to a liquid asset that this boy can take and go and spend on, on loose living, if we would say it that way, he's got to sell. The problem is he had to put it up for a discount price. He's got to move it quickly to give the son, the younger son, what he thinks he wants, right? And so he does that, and he gives him his inheritance, and then the boy goes off, and we know that he spends it in such a way, not to honor God, he's not on mission for God, he goes off to spend it on, on a living, uh, very, a very precious way of living, very, a very hard way of living, a very worldly um, way. And so he does it. And he runs out of funds. And then a famine gets around. We know, according to, I remember uh, being here uh, a couple summers ago. You were teaching to the book of Ruth, uh, Ruth and uh, and uh, we know that famines occur as part of God's judgment. God, in His love, chastises His people who rebel. And so famines occur because either God withholds the rain, uh, God sends invading armies that trample down the the the, um, the harvest, or God sends locusts or other uh, uh, insects. But either way, it's by the hand of God. Why? Because God lovingly refused those who he loved, lovingly chastised to correct them, trying to draw his people back. So, so a famine occurs. So God administering his, his discipline because of his love. That means a famine occurs there. And the boy, the young man, attaches himself to someone where he's feeding pigs and, and finally comes to moment where he comes to his senses, right? Like all of a sudden the light goes off. It's all of a sudden he's awakened to the reality. Oh my gosh, my father tired 
scripture says that, that the Father runs out to meet him. Now, again, by the way, I want to, I want to refer you to one book um, by Tim Keller called The Prophet God. Excellent, excellent read. But an old song by Benny Hester called The Only Time I Ever Saw God Run. It's a beautiful, beautiful song from the 80s. Uh, but, but if you picture this older gentleman, uh, and who, in that culture today, for an older man to do anything than to move slow with me, it would have been not possible. For an older man to show his legs, that was scandalous. So he's got this long floor, so he's like, oh, I need to grab it, tie it up. This goes running to his son. I mean, there's no dignity that this man is expressing. He doesn't care what everyone is thinking. He just goes running out to meet him. Now, in cultural times, the particular ceremony that, that, that it wasn't just a Jewish ceremony, he still practiced the Jewish custom, it was a Middle Eastern ceremony, that if a, if a child is so dishonored to a parent, particularly a son, to a family, to a community, when that son returned in his design, they would go out and play water pots, and outside the city, they would break those water pots at his feet, and they would disown him, the father, to the son, the community, to the individual. It's their way of shunning him based upon the disgrace that he had brought upon the, the father's name and upon the community's name. So here's the father running out. You think that maybe the prodigal, the young son returning, is wondering what his dad is going to do. There's men chasing after him as he's running, right? They get out there. And, and so, you know, I'm sure the son trying to get words out very quickly so that the father does not basically push him back away. Says, Father, Father, listen, listen to me. Stop, stop, stop. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. I sinned against heaven and against you. Please let me be. And, and before he can get everything out, the father interrupts him. Not, then he talked to him. I don't know if he grabs him by the face to look him in the eyes. I don't know if he falls down on him. I don't know exactly what his posture is. But he says to the servants who run out with him, go, go right now and get a robe and a ring and sandals. Now, now that was stuff somewhere, not a servant. Go get the things that signify my son is back. And then kill a, kill a fatty calf. Was my son would be dead. He's come back to life. What's lost is now back. And so they get back in and the party is going on. And then the older son, hearing the commotion, turns to a servant and asks, what's going on? And your, your brother who was dead has returned and your father is celebrating his return. And so the son doesn't go in and the news gets reported to the father and the father comes out to the second son. And the second son is, how dare you? This, this, this son of yours, not my brother, this son of yours took your inheritance what we have. And he squandered in a living that's not honoring to you. How in the world would you on his return make merry when you never made merry for me? Why would you celebrate his return? 
He's seeing the echoing of the Son, what's happening with what Jesus tells in the first two stories. It is better for one sinner to repent than 99 who thinks that they don't need righteousness to not. There, there, we are the celebrate. There's something intrinsically good about those who are lost. Reunion. 
people are brought back together. Isn't that, isn't that, isn't that the beauty of the gospel? That that which is broken gets restored? It's like when John Stott describes salvation in four ways. He describes it in the fact that there, in the New Testament, he says it this way, there's justification, it's the legal term. There is, um, uh, I'll say, there is redemption, which is a marketplace term. There is propitiation, which is a temple term or a religious term. And then there's reconciliation, which is a family term. And what you see in this is the gospel unpacked where that which is broken is now restored. Reconciliation takes place. And that's what happens when we as sinners repent, when our eyes are opened by, by the faith that God gives to us and our eyes are opened to Him and we see Him and we turn to Him and we trust Him and we surrender to Him as our Savior and our Lord. We, we come by faith to, to, to believe because of His graciousness of pursuing us, right? And so we, we do. We're restored to Him. And then what we see is in the body of Christ, where there's brokenness, that, that the gospel restores broken relationships, right? I mean, listen, if it's a picture of God who has infinitely taken been wronged by us, would, would pursue us for righteousness and draw us back to Himself, how much more for we, the body of Christ, to pursue one another in reconciliation, right? To be the active testimony in the body of God. <coughs> what precedes reconciliation? So we've got the party, that's what we want. Reconciliation has happened, but what 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 allowed the reconciliation? That's repentance. His father has been wrong. And the son needed to repent. Now I want to be honest today, in today's culture, we do not, we don't, we don't frame up repentance the way we need to. We'd say, well, if I if I if I say I'm sorry, you should be okay with that. I, I agree that we could use the term I'm sorry or other various things to communicate it, but this is my definition of repentance. Let me read it to you. It's maybe kind of lengthy, but stay with me. Repentance is the formal agreement where there is a recognition of wrong, a confession. I wronged you. The asking of forgiveness, seeking out that person I have wronged to ask their forgiveness and necessary remuneration if applicable and willingness of choice to alter future decisions based on this confession. That's different than I'm sorry. Right. You get where I'm coming from? Repentance is an act of mind and will where in the recognition that I have sinned against someone I mean, beginning against God, and I come to Him just as this boy was doing this father. I'm not even worthy to be your son. Just make me a higher son. Now, the beauty of the gospel is the Father didn't even allow him to get that out. The Father says, "Bring the robe, bring the ring, bring the sandals." He's my son. He was lost, and now he's, he's back alive. Right? He was lost, now he's found, and he's dead, and now he's alive. But as we repent toward one another. It is this sense of recognition. I wronged you. I, 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 listen, I love Mark. I am going to do things that she is not going to honor. There's going to be wrong. I don't want I, I mean, I just, I'm a broken individual. But I, what she's going to, she loves me. What she wants to hear from me, I wronged you. Not, hey, let me buy you something to make up. I, I think we cheapen the 
the idea of repentance by saying, if I if I buy you something for my anger outburst, that should atone for my anger. No, no. Your repentance is I sinned against you. Please forgive me. I am seeking God to change me and I want radical change. That's that's what's happening in the life of this young boy, this young man. He comes to the home, and the father welcomes him and restores him. So, so you see the party, the celebration of the reconciliation because of the reconciliation because of the repentance. Now, my, my, my encouragement to us this morning is to really think through, am I a repentant individual? Am I someone who is repentant before God and to my brothers and sisters? The second thing I want you to notice is who this is for. So the beauty of seeing the prodigal recognizes very clearly that this son who took all the inheritance and spent it on foolish living would take and uh, come back. But we often look at the older son. And to be honest with you, in our Christian culture, we look in the church a lot more like the older son than the younger. I want to read something by Tim Keller. This comes from Prodigal God. I, I found it so interesting. This is Tim Keller. Another sign of those with an elder brother's spirit is joyless, fear-based compliance. The older son boasts of his obedience to his father, but let his underlying motivation and attitude slip out when he says, All we hear, I have been slaved for you. To be sure, being faithful to any commitment involves a certain amount of difficulty. Often, we don't like doing what we ought to do, but we do it anyway for the sake of integrity. But the elder brother says that disobedience to the father is nothing but duty all the way down. There is no joy or love, no reward for just seeing his father please. In the same way, elder brothers are seditious in their compliance to ethical norms and in their fulfillment to all traditional family and community and civil responsibilities. But it is a slavish, joyous, excuse me, slavish, joyless, virtuous. The word slave has strong overtones of being forced or pushed rather than drawn our track. Slave works out of fear. Fear of consequences imposed by force. This gets to the root of what drives an elder brother. Ultimately, elder brothers live good lives out of fear, not out of fear and love. So, what I put down is who is is this gospel, this good news message for, this relentless pursuit of God? It is for both the moral relative, moral relativist, and the moral idealist. It is for both the libertine and what I term my own word, the labor tone. It is the person who is self-centered and whose self-centeredness leads to rule breaking as well as to the person who is guided by a moral compass, who sees rules over relationships. It is for the person whose worldly debauchery is a testimony of the rejection of grace for the passing pleasures of this world. And it is for the moral idealist who preserves ultimately
verses both 18 and in, excuse me, in verse 20 and in verse 29. The Father goes out to those sons. The Father sees the prodigal a long way off and runs out after him. And then the son, older son, won't come in and the father goes out to him. The father goes to the older son because he was just as lost as the first son. He had not spent all the family wealth on unrighteous living. In fact, he had fear, greatness, to more restrictions. Nothing wrong with that. Everything good with that. He was beautiful in how he served his father. Everything good in that. Unless you believe your salvation is tied to your beautifulness and obedience to your Lord Christ. In the moment that you mistakenly see your salvation to that and not to the completed work of Jesus Christ. You will live just like the older brother. You will know how to perform and do all the right things. You will show up routinely at church. You will fill the service. You will put money in the office place. You will do your duty as being Christian. But if it does not come out of a joy and love for Jesus Christ, then that is all it is. Broken work trying to earn salvation. You are pursuing the same pleasures in duty that the younger sons pursue. Matter of fact, I would say the greatest form of idolatry that we face in this country is the idolatry of believing we can save ourselves. I know this to be true, living in Iceland and trying to present the gospel there. And I heard Keller say in a message a long time ago, the greatest struggle with reaching a modern Manhattan, as he called it, where his church was located in Manhattan, New York, is the, is the truth of grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. And the reason for this is this. He, in sharing the gospel with a lady one time, she said, I cannot embrace it. And he said, why? And the reason is this. If I believe that salvation is by grace alone, then there's nothing I bring to the table. And if I bring nothing to the table, then there's nothing I can hold back from my life. If I believe by grace alone, and there's nothing I can do to earn my salvation, then there's nothing that my Savior cannot ask for. Most of us want gospel that allows us still to be in charge of our own Jesus offers the gospel is a serene joy to find a master who makes things all so delight in the rest. The beauty of this story is that although both sons are out there, the father is pursuing both. His love is for both. The question is, will you be one who comes to the party? Do you want to stay away? Do you want to build your life on just more business? Do you want the gospel to be able to change? So, in the fact that God continues to to pursue you to the testimony of His love and grace for each of us. Now, as we close,
Bless to your glory. 